Good to have you in town. We are in uh, Luke chapter 10, so you can take your Bibles and turn there. Yesterday I saw a tremendous video put out by the North American Mission Board on the, uh, the religious background of the colonies, the pilgrims, the Puritans. Most people cannot make, uh, cannot distinguish between the pilgrims and the Puritans. The pilgrims came first, landed on Plymouth Rock. They were a certain kind of religious group. Twenty years later, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritans came, and they're different. Uh, I had this, I sat up and took notice. I mean, I've read history for years. and uh, well, Anyway, this video is excellent. It was put out by the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2002. And uh, if you get a hold of that, uh, it may be shown this weekend on TBN again. That's where I, I saw it yesterday afternoon. But anyway, did anybody happen to see that? Uh, no one. Okay. It's just, it, huh? I'm not sure what the name of it is. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't get in on the beginning, but it was absolutely uh, fabulous. Also talked about Roger Williams, his uh, influence uh, in religious freedom in this, in the colonies, as well as a guy by the name of John Clark. Uh, Clark is the one who uh, influenced uh, Jefferson and Madison. Uh, in getting a religious clause in the Constitution. So anyway, makes doesn't make overstatements. That's the problem I have with people who come around and, and basically focus on one subject. We have people who just focus on prophecy, for example. I was saying this to Jim earlier. Uh, people just focus on prophecy. That's all they preach on is prophecy. Well, guess how many messages you have to come up with? How much new material just on that one little narrow area of prophecy? So when you do that, a lot of times you'll make overstatements. And it's the same with people who major on, on uh, Christianity in America. You, come up, you end up making statements to, to the crowd, in a sense. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes that's not good. Um, and one of the things that I, when I was listening to, to David Barton this morning, he said that after the revolution, uh, Washington realized that there was instability in the entire world. Uh, France had three revolutions, but things were rock solid in America, and things were stable in America. Things weren't stable in America after the revolution. Uh, this country was hung on a thread. Uh, I mean, it was that way for how many years? Yeah. I mean, all the way through the Civil War, at least, uh, and even more than that. So there wasn't stability here. I mean, things were really very tenuous. So that's the kind of things I was talking about. It's not so much the facts, it's just a perspective that's not necessarily... Uh, uh, correct. The uh, the thing, another thing is that uh, he mentioned that all the other countries had wars every 20 years of revolutions. Well, how long have we been in existence? 230 some years. And he mentioned himself, we've had 45 wars. That's about one every 20 years. That doesn't sound like it's any different than anywhere else. And we had a civil war, and we had wars within our own country, Indian wars, haven't we? Hundreds of them. So when we sort of try to put us against other nations in those kinds of respects, I think we make major mistakes. Put us against other countries in a religious respect, that's another story. Because this was a country that was basically founded on Christian principles, which is unique in the world. So that's the kinds of things that, that bother me, but that's just my hang-up. You know, I'm a little strange anyway when it comes to things like this. And uh, theologically, this country was totally unstable, by the way. Uh, after the revolution, because um, 
Unitarian Universalism was just sweeping this nation. You know what that is, Unitarianism? Rejecting of the Trinity. Universalism, you know what that is? That's everybody saved. That people were leaving the Methodist Church and other churches and Presbyterian churches, and they were becoming universalists. That was a reaction to Calvinism in this country. And our country was very unstable theologically right at that time. And uh, we, in fact, we were in a very low point. Uh, the revolution came between the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s and the Second Great Awakening, which occurred in 1806 in the East and a little bit later on the frontier. Between those two periods, the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, uh, our country was theologically unstable because there was a move to the Universalists, and it took another revival, a Second Great Awakening, to bring us back to the bedrock of the gospel. So, anyway, those are just hang up that Now, let's get to something really important. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Before there was an America. <laughs> That's not controversial. Now, the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we ended in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, where the 70 that Jesus had sent out had now returned, and they were rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them. And you remember that. We were, we were there last week. So we'll pick up at verse 21. It says, now in that hour, what hour? That same hour when the 70 returned rejoicing. In that hour, verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. So verse 21 uh, continues the previous discussion. The 70 re are rejoicing, Jesus rejoices, only there's a difference. They rejoice that they have power over demons. Here it says Jesus rejoiced in the spirit. Their rejoicing was the result of them being out there and being successful. Uh, Jesus rejoices because it was motivated by the Holy Spirit. And then this leads into a prayer, which is very interesting. <clears throat> he then says in verse 21... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. A very important phrase, because when Jesus is raised, he says that God had given him authority over heaven and earth, Jesus. So Jesus receives this authority from his Father. He says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things. What things? The gospel things, the kingdom things, the things about the kingdom. I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Now immediately we see two verbs. The verb hidden and the verb revealed. He thanks God that God, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, has hidden the gospel truth and the kingdom truths, and he has revealed the kingdom truth. Who has he hidden them from? Notice there are two categories of people. First, he's hidden them from the wise and the prudent. He's revealed them to who? Babes. Or to put it another way, he has hidden the gospel truths from those of high status. He's revealed it to those with no status. He's hidden it from the somebodies. He's revealed it to the nobodies. Now, notice that phrase wise and prudent. 
said, that's a wise man, wise person. That sounds like a pretty intelligent individual. If you say, now that person's prudent, that sounds like it's a person who's measured, a person who's reasonable, a person who's logical. Jesus has hidden, or God the Father has hidden the gospel and the kingdom truths from these people. Which should cause us to realize some things that with God, status isn't important. He doesn't care whether you're somebody or whether you're a nobody. And you also discover that logic alone cannot bring you to Christ or bring you into the kingdom. If it could, wise people could think their way into the kingdom. It takes a revelation. That's what the word revealed means. It takes a revelation. Peter, who do men say that I am? Some say Elijah, John the Baptist, or some other great prophet. Who do you say? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my what? Father in heaven. So Jesus says the Father has to reveal. So status has, those of status have no advantage over those of no status. And the gospel isn't aimed at those who are thinkers, Necessarily. Now, if I were God, and I wanted to reach the world, I'd try to reach the presidents of, com of, of companies, and the kings of nations, and uh, the up-and-outers, because they are people in, of influence. They're the movers and the shakers. Isn't that the, wouldn't that be the most logical thing? I went to a banquet a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the man who was in charge of this banquet, in charge of this ministry, says, I go in and I try to reach the kings of nations, because... As the, king heart, as the king's heart goes, so the nation will go. Well, that logically is true. The president of the United States has a bully pulpit. Person of great influence. But with God, status means nothing. In fact, you can be this, an Einstein, and I can use Einstein as an example. Consider the smartest person in the world and the gospel can be hidden from you. So with God, there's no status. And that's very important. In fact, it seems like the gospel is first aimed at the poor. The nobodies versus the somebodies. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the what? Rich? No, they weren't. He wasn't anointed to preach the gospel to the rich. He was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. So it's very interesting. Luke's gospel is a gospel of the poor. You want to know one book in the Bible that talks about reaching the poor with the gospel. This is the Gospel of Luke. And there are New Testament scholars who spend their entire lives just studying the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Both of those authored by the writer Luke. So it takes a revelation. If it didn't take a revelation, you could figure it out and you'd boast. You'd say, I guess what I discovered. And you can't discover anything. God has to reveal it. Does that make sense to you? Now, the gospel is either revealed or it's concealed. And uh, we don't have anything to do with it. It's God's prerogative. In fact, look at the end of verse 21 when he says, Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. It seemed good in God's sight to hide the truth from the people of status and reveal it to the people of no status. Why did God do it? Because he wanted to. That's why. He didn't ask our permission. He doesn't tell us why he does it. It's just because he wanted to. He's the sovereign God. He does what he wants to do, and he doesn't have to give any explanation. It just seemed good to him. 
seemed good in his own sight to do it. I do not understand that. I wish I did understand that, why he does it that way. Now look at verse 22. All things have been delivered to me. Notice their phrase, things. You saw that in verse 21. All the things of the kingdom, the gospel, have been delivered to me. Now notice this. They were revealed to people of no status. They were revealed to the nobodies. They were delivered to Jesus. There's a difference. Jesus possesses them. He's been given the authority over them. So they've been revealed to the lowly, but they have been delivered to Jesus. By my Father. Now watch this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Now guess what that means? No one knows the Son except the Father. That's what it means. So, there's only one person that knows the, father, knows the Son, and that's the Father. And if you're going to know the Son, then guess what the Father's going to have to do? Reveal him to you. See, you'll see this logical progression, this argument through the text. And then look what he says in verse 22. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except what? The Son. So guess what? If you're going to know the Father, guess what? Jesus is going to have to reveal it to you. They know each other. There's a reciprocal relationship between the Son and the Father. And that's what he says. Look at the end of verse 22. And the one to whom the Son reveals him. This is why Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus has to reveal the Father to you. So this is very interesting when you look at that. Now look at verse 24. Verse 24. Jesus has to reveal, the Father has to reveal, and usually they reveal to the babes. That's what it says, the babes. Four, because I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. In other words, what's been revealed to you. And have not seen it. And have not seen it. In fact, if you look at verse 23, because I just skipped 23 and no one told me. <laughs> so you did the same thing to me that you did to Troy. Couldn't <laughs> you? Troy forgot to announce the visitors and you didn't tell him. And <laughs> Troy and I just, we're embarrassed up here in front of all these people. Now look, verse 23. Then he turned to his disciples. Now watch what happens. Up until 21 through 20, I guess 22, he deals with this whole issue of revelation. Now he talks to, turns from talking to the Father to talk to his disciples. Now look, 23. Then he turned to his disciples and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see which shows you that Jesus has revealed these things, and the Father's revealed these things to the apostles. <clears throat> and I could put our names in there. He could say this, blessed are you, because you've seen these things. We are blessed. 
See, this is nothing that we've earned. This is absolutely 100% a blessing that God has chosen to reveal these things to us. Now, why is it a blessing for those to have seen these things? Notice the things there again, the gospel things, the kingdom things. For I tell you, verse 24, that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not. That's why we're so blessed. There are kings and prophets who want to see the things that we've seen. And guess what? They've never been revealed to them. And God revealed them to us. How blessed can you be? See, that's an amazing thing. And then at the end of 24, he says this. And to hear what you heard, the gospel, and have not heard it. So why have we heard it if they haven't heard it? Because it pleased God, according to his own reasoning, his own sovereignty, to reveal these things to us. And I'll never understand it, and you won't understand it. But I want you to notice those categories again. Up in verse 22, verse 21, you have wise and prudent. Do you see that? The gospel was hidden from the wise and the prudent. Now, down in verse 24, the gospel's been hidden from whom? The kings and the prophets. See, now these are people of high status. That's what he's saying here. And it's been revealed to babes, to the disciples, to the down and outers, to the prostitutes, to the toll collectors, to the outcasts, to the unclean, to the nobodies. You see, that's who he has chosen to reveal the gospel to. I don't understand it. He came to his own. His own received him not. But the common people heard him gladly. And it's an amazing thing. So for some reason, God chooses to reveal the gospel to people who don't have positions, oftentimes. And I would venture to say, I'm not a betting man, but I would venture to say that if you checked across the board throughout all the world, and you divided people into different classifications and different monetary positions in their society, you would discover that it's the common people on the whole. There are exceptions. Can a rich person get into heaven? Yes, but it's about as hard as a camel getting through a needle. With their own ability, is they can't do it. It's God has to reveal it to them. But people who oftentimes, not always, but have money or people position, they don't feel a need. They're self-satisfied. And you're going to see an example of this in just a moment, which is very interesting. Okay, now let's look at verse 25. This is very interesting. Because now what we have is an unexpected interruption. Jesus has prayed to God. He's spoken to his disciples. While he's speaking, something happens. Look at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice that this man breaks into the private conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. It says he spoke to them privately. Privately. And here's a guy that somehow, maybe has, heard the, has overheard the statement, and guess what he's done? He just breaks right in. And he says, what do I have to do? 
Debbie Charlotte. Sort of like my, some of my students. Not, not students that are here today. <laughs> but I might be having a deep conversation or just a, in the corner with a group of students, and then I'll have some student who just weasels his way in, noses his way in, and uh, ask a question. Okay. Trying to, and it's usually a person who's a know-it-all. You know, a person's got a big mouth, doesn't know it all, wants you to think that they know it all, they want to get in on the private conversation. They have no idea what you're talking about. You could be talking about the death of someone in someone's family, but they need to get over there, and they have something that they want to say, and they usually do it. So this is what we have, this guy who does that. Now I want you to notice his identity in verse 25. He's called a lawyer. Not the kind of lawyers we have today. Okay? <laughs> He's a scribe. And a scribe was a person who interpreted the law of Moses, not the Roman law, not governmental law. And uh, so he's, he's a person who knows scripture. Okay, And notice his question in verse 25. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why would he say... What must I do? Because up until this time, what's Jesus been talking about? How the gospel's hidden, how the gospel's revealed. And guess what category this guy falls into? Is he a babe, a nobody, or is he a somebody? He's a somebody. Now, if somebody's, if the gospel's hidden from somebody, so he asks this question, well, what about me? But notice his motive. What's it say? Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Just like my students. Come in, they ask me some hard question, just testing me to see if I can fall into their trap. See? And that's what, because this guy really has all the answers, and you'll see that he thinks he has the answers. At this point, you don't realize it, but that's what's, what the situation is. So he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he's testing Jesus. It's not necessarily an honest question. And so Jesus said to him, and here's Jesus' response, what is, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? Jesus answers his question with a question. And every teacher learns to do that. You never answer the student's question directly, especially when they're trying to trap you. So you usually say, well, what do you think about that passage? <laughs> so that's what Jesus says. He says, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? What's your take on it? What's your interpretation? So now the young guy answers, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, number one, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Obviously the guy knows the scriptures. It's also found in Leviticus 19. It's the law. He's an interpreter of the law. He answers that question without even a second thought. He knows the answer just like that. This is the mark that you are a child of God, that you are loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus commends him. <clears throat> Look what he says. He said to him, you have answered rightly. In other words, right on. You got it right. Do this, 
and you will what? Live. Now, what was his question? What must I do to inherit life? Jesus said, what's the law? He told him, love your neighbor, love God. Jesus says, do this. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, and you'll live. So Jesus answered his question. Verse 29. This is the young man's but. Okay? Look what happens. But, wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, when it says he wanted to justify himself, it means he wanted to vindicate himself. He wanted to let Jesus know everything's okay with him. Uh, you know, he's... Uh, he doesn't like, he doesn't accept Jesus' answer. Why didn't the young man, if he was honest, simply say, oh, that's what I need to do. Okay, thank you. I'll do it and live. But he doesn't do that. He asks a theological question. Because he wanted to justify himself. He thinks he's okay. Now, one of the themes of Luke's gospel, we've seen this throughout, is that it's not enough just to know the scriptures. Remember that? It's not enough just to know the gospel. You have to live the gospel. <laughs> you can't be just a hearer of the word. You have to be a what? A doer of the word. So what does Jesus say? Do this and you'll live. That's one of the themes of this gospel of Luke, is that it's not enough just to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Millions of people say that. The truth needs to be manifest through some sort of action. This shows evidence that there has been repentance and there's been the turning away from self. This guy has not turned away from self. He is self-justified. Okay? So, in verse 29, he asked that question. Who is my neighbor? Is the Roman soldier my neighbor? Have to love him? Is the foreigner my neighbor? We have to love some old foreigner? Somebody's not a Jew? Do I have to love Herod? Do I have to love someone who collaborates with the Roman government? Do I have to love someone who's unclean, deals with blood all the time, doesn't keep the law? Do I have to love a Gentile? A dog? How far do I have to go? That's the question. How far do I have to go? Now, all he's trying to do, he's not accepting Jesus' answer. That's the bottom line. He's trying to justify himself. Then Jesus answered. Now, the first time Jesus answered the young man's question, he answered it with another question. This time... Jesus answers the young man's question with a story. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, but it's very important in order to really understand what the Good Samaritan's about is to understand the context. The context of the story is a God chooses to hide the gospel and the kingdom truths to some people 
and he chooses to reveal it to another. And this young man wants to know how he can be saved. You know, that's the context, so you need to understand that. So we have this parable, okay? And context is the key. So look what he says in verse 30. Then Jesus answered, he tells a story, and he said, A certain man went down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus doesn't identify this traveler. He just calls him a certain man. Just a human being. Just an average person. And he's ambushed by a gang who beat him up, tear off his clothes so he's naked. And he leaves him on this, robs him of everything he has, leaves him on the side of the road, half dead. He can't get up and run after them, can't call the police. Absolutely helpless. So that's the story. Just a certain certain man. Just a human being. Now look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The first person that comes down the road is a religious leader. Okay? A religious leader. And he passed by on the other side, which seems to indicate once he saw the guy, he does like many of us do, and cross the street. So he wouldn't have to be involved with this person's problems. Even, the guy, even though the guy's lying there on the street, half dead. Now, you've, been, you've walked by people that have been lying on the street. You just say, well, that's a bum. Now, it could be half dead. You don't know what that person is. But what have you done? Have you stopped and taken a look, or have you just put your foot on the gas a little faster? You know, what's, what have you done? What have I done? So this guy probably crosses the road and just passes right on by Pays no attention. Now look at verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Now I want you to notice that both of these are full-time religious leaders. They are temple workers. These are people that the Jewish population respects in the sense that they supposedly represent God. <coughs> The Levites are those workers in the temple who took the place of the firstborn of Israel. Remember when the death angel passed over Egypt and the Jews had to smear blood on the doorpost to pass over and the death angel would pass over their house and spare their firstborn? At that point, guess what? Your firstborn lived. And God said, now what? Now your firstborn is mine, but I'm going to let you buy your firstborn back. And so you would pay five shekels, and you got your firstborn child back, and he could live in your house. And God designated the Levites to take the place of the firstborn, and they became temple workers. These are people specially chosen by God, just like the priestly family, and they're both of very high status. And there's sort of a cadence here. If you look at verses 30 and 31, it says they're 31 and 32. Look at the priest. Came down the road. Saul, passed by. Look, came, Saul, passed by. Likewise, look at the Levite. He arrived, came, looked, Saul, looked, passed by. We don't know why they passed by. There's no motivation. 
doesn't tell us why they did it. It just said that's what they did. Now, these are people who are high status by birth, and they are privileged. But one thing we know is they go out of their way to avoid this man. Now look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan. Now, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you go, a certain Samaritan. Can't despise. Just think of the people that you don't like. Maybe an individual in your family. Maybe somebody you know, on the other side of the family. Somebody that you don't like or neighbor that you can't stand. Every time their name is mentioned, you just sort of go, ah. We don't like that. Okay, well, that's what a Samaritan is. We're talking about, a, we could put it this way, a despised Samaritan. Okay? A certain Samaritan. As he journeyed, came where he was. Now, a Samaritan is certainly not a holy man, is he? And he's not a man of status in the Jewish community. He'd be part of these nobodies. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This is his motivation. He looks at the person, and he's brokenhearted. The word compassion was last used in Luke's Gospel when Jesus is walking down the road and he sees a funeral and he stops the funeral and he says maybe it was a widow and her dead son and the son was going to be buried and it says he looked and he had compassion on them. He came. He looked. And he didn't pass by. He had compassion. That's exactly what the Samaritan does. He acts just like you. And he has compassion on him in verse 34, it says, And so he went to him. It shows that there's a little bit of effort. And he bandaged his wounds and poured oil, pouring on oil and wine. He was probably on the other side of the road. He had to make, a, had to make an effort to get over there. and takes care of the man. He set him on his own animal. That's the animal he was riding. He brought him to an inn. And he took care of him. So there's some effort here. This man, uh, whatever resources he had, some wine, maybe some oil, whatever he has, he uses to take care of this man that he has never met, that he doesn't know, and by rights should despise, because the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. They are of different religions. One's holds to a quasi-cultic type of Judaism. The others are probably Jews. But he helps. And then the next day, <coughs> spends the night with him, probably in that same room in the inn, takes care of him. You know what it's like if you've had a child who has a high fever, or a husband, or a spouse, or a relative, and you've had to take care of them through the night? That's not fun. And this guy is so bad, he doesn't get better the next day. He's still sick. And so it says on the next day, Verse 35, when he departed, the Samaritan departed, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay him. So, he then has, probably has some business he has to go to, he reaches in and takes out two denarii, which is two days wages. Now, 
two days wages, in modern terms, if you make $25,000, that'd be $200 out of your pocket. If you make 10 times that much, it would be about $2,500, which is a pretty significant amount. We don't know how much he gave, but it's two days wages. He takes two days wages, gives it to the innkeeper, and says, I'm going to come back. Uh, if it happens to be more than that, I'll repay. Now, can the innkeeper rip him off? Yes. Can he rip the innkeeper off? Yeah, you think so, but not really, because he's already invested everything. <laughs> we see that this man's hired already. We don't know the innkeeper's heart. So he's putting it all on the line. He says, whatever it costs, I will repay. Now, that's the story. Now, Jesus poses a question. Look at verse 36. Here's the question. So, which of these three do you think, he's saying this to the lawyer, do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. Now notice Jesus turns the question around, which is very interesting. It's something most people don't realize. Jesus totally reverses the question. The young man said, when Jesus said, love your neighbor, the young man said, what? Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, wrong question. That's not an issue. It's not who's your neighbor. It's who will you be neighborly toward? The issue is not who's your neighbor, the issue is you. Will you be a neighbor towards someone else? So which one of these three men would you say was a neighbor toward the man on the road? So the guy gives his response, and he said, He who showed mercy on him. Right answer. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Initial answer, love God, your neighbor is yourself. God tries to justify himself. Jesus tells the story. You need to act neighborly. Which one's a neighbor? The Samaritan. Go and do likewise. In other words, practice what you preach. You said this is what God requires, then do it. It's not enough just to get up there and say, I believe, I believe. You lack one thing. Action. Action. Why most people in churches are lost and don't have eternal life. I don't care how many times they've been baptized, how many times they've walked forward, how many times they've made professions of faith. If there's no evidence of it in their life, there's no evidence that they have eternal life. It's not enough to say, I believe. Let's see the evidence. Now, based on this, does the Pharisee show evidence of salvation? Does the Levite show evidence of salvation? Original premise. God hides the gospel truth and the kingdom to the wise and the prudent, these guys, and he reveals it to babes, even somebody like the Samaritan. 
See, that is what the, really the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. Now, how does the lawyer respond? What's it say in the next verse? Does he obey the word? You say, well, it's not even about that. He goes to another story. That's right, we're not told. That's not important. Luke is writing this for you. <laughs> the question is not, how did the lawyer respond? <laughs> the question is, how will we respond? And that will let us know whether the gospel has been revealed to us or whether it's being hidden from us, whether we indeed are showing forth evidence of salvation or whether we are just professing faith in Christ. How will we respond? Neighborly love, according to this passage, knows no boundaries. No status boundaries, no social boundaries, no gender boundaries, no race boundaries, no economic boundaries, it doesn't matter. These people were as different as night and day, but the Samaritans showed compassion. Compassion is always what God requires. Mercy is what God requires. What does God require? That we show mercy. That's what the scripture says. And when we do that, we imitate God. Because while we were yet sinners, so far different from God, God poured his love out upon us. And he reached down us who were sick and dying sinners. And he showed compassion. And he wrapped his arms around us just like the Good Samaritan. And he nursed us back to spiritual health. We're to be imitators of Christ. We're to be imitators of God and show compassion to others. The gospel of Christ is not a gospel to just the Jews. It's a gospel to the Gentiles as well. It's not a gospel to only people who've got their act together. It's a gospel to those who have never gotten their act together. It's not a gospel that's narrow. It's a gospel that has universal scope. God loves the world and he invites, invites us to come. And the question is well, whether we will do it. And then, after we come, will we go out and love God with all of our heart and our neighbor? Next week, we will see the story of Mary and Martha, which is connected with this in some way, and we'll see that next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look at a passage of scripture that we've looked at for years in its context and see what the real message is. And I thank you, Lord, for this passage of scripture. I ask that you minister to us. May this passage of scripture be a sweet savor to those who indeed are living the gospel. And for those who are only professing it, Lord, may it be a word of, of uh, admonition. Help us to take it to heart. Help us, Lord, to be like the Samaritan. Help us to show mercy and compassion upon others, even those that are not like ourselves. Help us to show the love of Christ. May we be his hands and feet and eyes and mouth as we reach out and touch others with the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.